From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for allowing me into your home once again, and my wish for you, as always, is that wherever you are, you are safe, warm, dry, and well-fed. Years from now, I truly believe, that much of what is discussed on this program will emerge from the shadows, will cease to be banished to the late, late shift. Much of what we discuss in this program will be, dare I say, considered mainstream. Hell, you might even hear this stuff on the morning show or the drive home show. In fact, it's already starting. At the end of last year, the Washington Post published a year-in-review article entitled 2013, The Year That Proved Your Paranoid Friends Are Right. Everywhere you look, there's confirmation that conspiracies are real. They're happening every day. And we're not just talking about conspiracy to commit murder or conspiracies in the corporate world, things like collusion or price fixing. These types of conspiracies are before the courts every day. I'm talking about elite, powerful, unelected oligarchs who are trying to stage manage events to their benefit. Call them the Bilderbergs, call them the CFR or the Illuminati. The names aren't important. The point is, more and more people are waking up to the fact that we are being lied to every day by our media, by our government, by our institutions. And that's a good thing. I look forward to the day when this type of programming is mainstream. But that's a few years off. And so we continue to toil in the shadows. In the uh, second half of this hour, our resident paranormal expert, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, will be here for a paranormal news roundup. Because there are a number of interesting items in the news recently that I'd like her to comment on. Uh, A British professor in Manchester, England, for example, claiming he's captured photographic evidence for the existence of fairies. There's an eight-year-old girl in the slums of Rio de Janeiro who's said to be performing miracles, healing people with a simple touch of her hand. And one that's uh, most interesting, exorcisms, a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church that's only mentioned in hushed tones. Exorcisms are being embraced by the psychiatric community, but they've changed the name, and uh, now they're calling it spirit release therapy. Spirit release therapy. Hmm. Well, we'll find out what that's all about. Rosemary Ellen Guiley in about a half hour right here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, but there is something also headed our way in tomorrow night, in fact, Passover. Assuming you have clear skies, you can look up in the sky and behold a blood moon, a total lunar eclipse, but a blood red, and it's only the first of four blood moons coming our way between now and September 2015. Four blood moons, all landing on Jewish high holidays, or feasts of the Lord. And the four blood moons will in fact bookend, two on one side and two on the other, a complete solar eclipse, all within the next year and a half. Four blood moons, a solar eclipse, all coinciding with four feasts of the Lord. The odds are, to say the least, astronomical. But, is there something else going on? Do these four blood moons, coinciding with four feast days, presage something? The end of days, the coming of the terrible day of the Lord, the great tribulation, Jacob's troubles. Well, my guest in the first half of this hour 
is about to explain all about the coming blood moon tetrad. Mark Blitz is founder of El Shaddai Ministries in Washington State. He's a well-known and popular commentator on the Feasts of the Lord. Pastor Blitz has spoken at congregations and conferences in Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, and right here in Canada, as well as throughout the United States. He is the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Listen, as uh, we speak, tomorrow night we're going to have the first of these total total lunar eclipses. And before we get into uh, you know, the, the biblical meaning of, of moons and how God uses the moon and the sun as signposts and, and, and the significance of the feasts and when the two coincide, we need to do some definitions here. S- strictly speaking, from an astronomical point of view, what is a blood moon? Sure. A blood moon is a total lunar eclipse when the moon goes completely behind the earth in its umbra is what it's called and it turns blood uh, a total blood red uh, it's because of as the the sunlight rays go through our atmosphere uh the lighter and the blue shorter rays get reflected out and it's the red longer rays that hit the moon and so the moon has this total blood red look and so the the umbra, I guess, then is that's the Earth's shadow. Is that right? Yes. And then there's uh, on either side of it is what is called the penumbra. And sometimes there's lunar eclipses that are called a penumbral lunar eclipse because it doesn't. It, it's just at an angle. It's not totally behind the Earth. Now, how uh, how common or uncommon is a blood moon? Fantastic question. That's uh, that's a. One of the smartest questions I've had asked, and the reason why is this. NASA records over the last 5,000 years that there have been only 3,479 total lunar eclipses. And that means, on an average, you only have one total lunar eclipse every year and a half. And here we have four within a year and a half. But can they be predicted? Can you predict when blood moons are coming? Oh, oh you bet. That, yeah, NASA has 5,000 years. They can go forward 2,000 years. They can go backward 3,000 years because it was created scientifically. Uh, God is uh, – when he created this thing, he knew what he was doing. And so we can know exactly what year, what, what minute, where they're going to be seen, how long they're going to be seen. It, it's all math. Could they have done that in ancient times? I don't know. Uh, I think uh, uh, with a pen and a paper, they might have been able to figure some of these things out. You know, I mean, they were pretty smart back then. Sure. But I don't know. I don't know how far in advance they could have gone. Okay. Now, so tomorrow night we're going to get the first in a series. They're calling it the the tetrad, meaning a series of four blood moons, which will will span basically a year. It'll uh, it'll start right. It's tomorrow a year night. and a half. And the reason why it's called the Tetrad is because there's four in a row with no partial or penumbral in between them. Now, how uncommon is that? That has only happened, okay, uh, especially on the feast days, only eight times in the last 2,000 years. Eight times in the last 2,000 years. So this is that quite you have had these falling four in a row on the feast days. All right, and we'll get into these feast days in a moment. Now, there's also a solar eclipse uh, coming, uh, is there not? Do these not do these lunar eclipses not bookend the solar eclipse? Yes, they do. 
there is a total solar eclipse that is uh, falling on uh, the biblical calendar. It's on Nisan 1, but on our calendar, uh, you're going to see it. Let me see what I have here. It's right on Nisan 1. It's you know, right in April. And then a solar, e- a partial solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah. All right. Now, let's go into the Bible, and, and let's talk about how we can understand, I guess, God's clock or God's calendar, and how he uses the sun and the moon as signposts. What is the significance of that? Uh, it's huge. Uh, a lot of the problem is our English language doesn't really give the correct translation to uh, Bible verses. In Genesis 1.14, God said he created the sun and the moon, we think, for light and heat. But the first thing he says is for signs or signals. And then it says for seasons, days, and years. Now, when we read seasons, days, and years, we think of our normal calendar. But that's a wrong interpretation. The Hebrew word translated as season is moed, and it also is translated as another word, feast, in Leviticus 23. So does the word mean fall, or does it mean food? Actually, they're both wrong. It means an appointed time, like Passover is an appointed time when this blood moon is falling, uh, you know, tomorrow night. And so this is incredible that God created the sun and the moon to send signals on his feast days, and here that's what we see happening. So when we see a blood moon or when we see a solar eclipse, and when, in, in particular when they coincide with these feast days, which we'll discuss in a moment, we are supposed to stand up and take notice we are being sent a message. Exactly. You got it. Pastor Mark Blitz is with us, the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. All right, so... Let's talk about the feast days that come into play on these uh, four blood moons that are coming over the next year and a half. Talk to me sure. about these feast days. Okay. Well, they're falling on Passover and then also on the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as Sukkot. And they're falling on these feast days two years in a row. Now, Passover, we know, is when uh, uh, Jesus died. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, many Christians aren't familiar with it, but in Zechariah 14, it talks about how God coming to earth and tabernacling among men. And uh, the Jews were asked to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So the whole concept is God tabernacling among us. And so here you have these two blood moons, two years in a row, on Passover when he died, and then on Tabernacles when he wants to come and dwell with us. And the again, these uh, blood moons are bookending a solar eclipse. Does the solar eclipse fall on an important feast day? Oh, my goodness, yes. It falls on the first day of Nisan. Now, that is the very day that the fire fell from heaven at the inauguration ceremony or grand opening ceremony of Moses' tabernacle and lit the fire on the altar. So it's a very significant day. Wow. Uh, (laughs) And then the solar eclipse, uh, the next solar eclipse is on Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets, which is incredible. Now, that solar eclipse happens, the the second uh, solar eclipse happens when? It happens two weeks before the uh, total lunar eclipse on the Feast of Tabernacles. So here in 2015, the religious year was to begin on Nisan 1, and here we have this total solar eclipse. Two weeks later, a total lunar eclipse followed by another solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah, two weeks later by a total lunar eclipse on the Feast of Tabernacles, and it is a supermoon. And many people may not be aware, but being a supermoon is incredible. Okay, so let's just review here. 
The blood moons, the first is coming, April 15th, and for some of my listeners, it'll already have occurred. Uh, that'll be on the Jewish Passover. And then yeah. the next one comes on the Feast of Tabernacles, which is October, October the 8th, 8th of 2014. Right. And then the next one comes when? Well, the total solar eclipse is on March 20th. Okay. And then the next one is April 4th, the total blood moon on Passover, followed by the another solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah, which is September 13th, followed by the last super blood moon on September 28th, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right. So when has this happened previously, when blood moons have coincided with important feast days? And what happened on those occasions? Well, that's what's incredible. The last time it happened was 1967 and 68 when Israel recaptured Jerusalem. During the Six-Day War, okay. Exactly. And the time before that was 1948 when they became a nation. (coughs) Sorry. All right, so blood moons in, was it 48 or 49 and 50? I guess it came right after the nation of Israel was assembled, or did it happen right in 48? No, 49 and 50. Okay, so after the nation had been assembled. Correct. Giving the Jews a, home li- a homeland for the first time in thousands of years. Obviously a very significant date. And then before that, I understand there was another occasion. <clears throat> yes, which is incredible. The Spanish Inquisition began in, well, 1492. It's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and they kicked all the Jews out of Spain and Portugal. And so here, right after that, in 1493 and 1494, you have these four blood moons. For those who would say, for those who would say, Pastor Blitz, that this is just coincidental and that you can look for dates and you can, you can find meaning, uh, in any particular calendar year, uh, I'll get you to address this when we come back from a break, but sure. I, I'd like you to address the skeptics out sure. there who would just say this is simply coincidental, four blood moons, bookending a solar eclipse, uh, and coinciding with important feast days. It's occurred in the past on significant dates, particularly uh, significant to the Jewish people. Just a coincidence. Mark Blitz will address that. When we come back, you're listening to The Conspiracy, Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740. And we are back with Pastor Mark Blitz, the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. So again, to the skeptics, the debunkers, Mark, who would say this is merely coincidence to have four blood moons on significant Jewish feast days. Well, I don't know how you can call it coincidence when it's only happened eight times in 2,000 years. And when you look at at least the last three times, they were hugely significant. Not only that, get a load of this. In 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, you can go to NASA's website, and there were solar and lunar eclipses in 69, 70, and 71 A.D., all surrounding the destruction of the temple. You go back further to the time when Jesus died. In 32 and 33 A.D., solar lunar eclipses all over the biblical calendar. These things don't happen. To the naysayers, I go, prove me wrong. You go to NASA's website, and, and you prove me wrong. Now, I'm hearing, speaking of NASA, Mark, I'm hearing that these days NASA is being rather hush-hush about this whole thing. What's that all about? (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I knew they took their website down for a while. Right, right. Uh, and then they put it back up again, and they had made some changes and things. But I can't speak on their behalf, but it definitely looks suspect. You think that they're simply trying to uh, – they're anticipating some what they might term as hysteria, and they're trying to, to calm people down? Is that what it's about? Or, or uh, is there something maybe more sinister afoot? Well, I don't. Uh, I I would not uh, want to presume anything more sinister. I do know that a few years ago that uh, President Obama installed a Muslim to oversee it. To, to oversee NASA. Yeah, the the website or NASA. Oh, the yeah. website. Okay. Yeah, I, I in NASA, I believe. Interesting. All right. So uh, let's let's go to the the, the Bible uh, and and what it has to say about you know these solar or lunar eclipses. Um, first of all, in the Old Testament, I think there's something in Joel about the sun shall be turned into darkness or something. I don't yeah. have that in front of me. But what, what does the Old Testament say about these signposts? Well, that's what that's a great question. Here's the reason why. Do you know in Joel, three times it talks about the sun turning to sackcloth and the moon to blood or turning dark. Well, guess what? It mentions it like three times, and it bookends this verse. God is going to judge all the nations who are trying to divide the land of Israel. Now, hello, look at what's been going on. Everyone's trying to divide the land of Israel. The United States, uh, our State Department, the nations of the world, this big push to divide the land of Israel. Well, I think these are like four flashing red warning lights at an intersection saying, you better be careful if you cross. I think these are really a warning uh, from the heavens not to try to divide the land of Israel or judgment will come. So so you really see these uh, this tetrad of blood moons coming down the pipe starting tomorrow night as a harbinger of, what, the beginning of the tribulation? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. I think what I see these harbingers of, and again, it's important to take note. I'm not saying anything's going to happen on the specific day of the eclipse, but I think, as you said, they're harbingers of trouble coming. Number one, when you look at the past, and I'm just wanting to be a scientific observer here. What happened in 48? A biblically prophetic war with Israel. What happened in 67? A biblically prophetic war with Israel. So there's a good chance sometime the next year and a half, especially when you look at what's happening with Iran, with Syria, Moscow, all these things, there's a good chance that's going to happen anyway. And this is just, uh, I mean, people see that even without these blood moons. So I, I see that this is, uh, you know, a, a, an acknowledgement from the heavens. The other thing is a global economic collapse. And we're reading about that all over in the news, and I'll tell you why I say that. <clears throat> when you understand the, the Shemitah cycle or the seven-year cycle, this is where the bankruptcy laws came from in America, where every seven years you could claim bankruptcy. It's based on the biblical law where there was an economic reset in the seventh year. That's Death right, like a, like a jubilee. Exactly. Like a jubilee. I, I've talked to, uh, to uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Kahn about that, and it is fascinating, talking about harbingers, sure. Well, exactly, because in 2001, on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month, the seventh year, here with the Dow fall 7%. Exactly seven years later, 2008, on Rosh Hashanah, a little 29, the Dow falls 7%. And now here again in 2015 on Rosh Hashanah, we have a solar eclipse coming, and it could be our third strike. And then, Yes, if you dial it back. Back to uh, was it uh, just after the uh, uh, the nine eleven attacks? Of course, you had another huge stock market uh, collapse. Yeah, right, right. That was yes, that was uh, two thousand one. That's the first. That was the end of the Shemitah year. And you dial it back further to nineteen ninety four. That was the Shemitah year, and I believe that's when the warning actually took place. If you remember the Shoemaker Levy comet when Jupiter was struck by twenty one fragments. Yes. 
Most people aren't aware of it, but it happened on the weekend of the 9th of Av, the very same day the temple was destroyed twice. It's when the spies brought the bad report. I mean, that day is a day of judgment. And the Torah portion that weekend was Deuteronomy, uh, which in Hebrew was translated as Devarim, or in English, these are the words. So it's almost like a judgment is striking Jupiter on Judgment Day, the 9th of Av, and God is saying, these are the words. I'm trying to tell you something. Well, 21 divided by 3 is 7. So I felt the next three Shemitah years were going to be times of judgment. And that's what we had in 2001. That's what we had in 2008. And now here could be the third strike. In fact, in 2008, with the the, uh, the stock uh, index, didn't it fall something like 777? Exactly. It was fell 777 points. It was a 7% drop on the $700 billion failed bailout, uh, producing a $700 billion loss on the first day of the seventh month, in the I, seventh year. I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask you what happened in October 1987 or going back to the stock market crash in 29. Were those jubilee years as well? Do we know? <laughs> I, I don't uh, know if I'd have to go back and think for a minute to see if they were the Shemitah years or not this in the seven-year cycle. But uh, there is a lot of uh, things out showing uh, the seven-year cycle of the stock market, and that seventh year is not a good year. Uh, going back to the blood moons and, and um, uh, or a solar eclipse, for example, and I know that it's often mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, for example, sure. where Jesus is talking about yeah. the, the connection between the, the, a solar eclipse and tribulation. What, is it, what does he say exactly? Right. Well, uh, uh, I'll give you an exact verse in Luke twenty-one twenty-five. Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon. Well, I mean, hello, he said in Genesis 1.14, he created the sun and the moon to send signs. And now in Luke, he's saying, hey, guess what? There's going to be signs in the sun and the moon. He's just confirming uh, what he's saying in Genesis. And all I'm doing is connecting those dots and saying, hey, when we see these signs in the sun and the moon on the biblical feast days, I believe God is trying to tell us something. Now, I'm not the one to interpret it and say this is what he's saying. But all I'm doing is saying, this is what I'm reading, so now let's try to figure out, you know, what could it be trying to tell us? Uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and is. terrible day of the Lord comes. That's Acts mm. 2. Yes, and it's quoting Joel. And I, these could be, and I don't know if it's the first one or the last one, but uh, and which means the tribulation could start after the last one. You know, so I don't know. I feel like my role is more of a watchman, letting people know what I see. Kind of like, you know, in the old TV shows, you would see the horses kicking up dust off in the distance and you didn't know if it was a friend or foe coming. I see these things as God kicking up the dust in the distance, and, and I don't know what's coming, but I think we need to be alert. Um, I'm going to, this is obviously pure speculation, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting as we're approaching this uh, tetrad of, of blood moons, and the first one again, Tomorrow night, a series of four blood moons over the next year and a half, all four blood moons coinciding with an important Jewish feast day. And, of course, those feast days, I know you would argue we should also be uh, marking and, and celebrating as Christians. Uh, uh, but I'm wondering whether, it, it's interesting that recently we had uh, the state of Israel closing a number of embassies around the world, whether, whether in fact... Um, Israeli intelligence or the Israeli military are also paying attention to this, these harbingers and preparing for something. I think you could very well be right. That's the scuttlebutt that I hear as well. This has never happened before, and it could be they're pulling their people out of their embassies before a strike on Iran. Interesting. 
what what would you say to those who might argue well this simply then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy well i uh, who am i to presume the presidents of the nations are listening to me for heaven's sake you know uh, <laughs> You know, I think that um, uh, these are warning shots from the heavens, and we need to be paying attention. If something happens, you know, uh, all I can say is, hey, you know, God was trying to warn us. So for those who haven't witnessed a blood moon, what are we going to see tomorrow night? If you, Are you going to go outside? Sure. You're going to look at this? What's it going to mm-hmm. look like? Well, it, it'll be on the East Coast. Uh, I think totality is at 3 in the morning. On the West Coast, it's midnight. And uh, here in Seattle, we probably won't see anything. There'll be clouds. <laughs> but people can go to, uh, I think it's the Griffith Observatory. You know, there's different websites, scientific websites, that everyone can see it on the Internet right in their home if it's cloudy. But believe it or not, I have a friend of mine that is flying me to Michigan, and he has a little plane, and we're going to go up above the clouds and try to take some good pictures. Oh, is that right? You're going to do that? Yeah. Good for you. And 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 what is it? I mean, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be other than the color? Is it going to be an exceptionally large moon? Or uh, yeah, I think uh, it'll it'll be uh, definitely you know a blood red, and it you know it starts. You can see it slowly getting dark until it reaches totality, and then it moves and it uh, you know uh, goes partial the other direction. But it's uh, I'm not sure if it'll be exceptionally large. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back to Lamass's website to see uh, how many miles away it is, because the the moon's orbit around the Earth is elliptical, and so every month uh, when it's at its closest point, if it's at perigee, it's a supermoon. Well, this month it's not uh, at its closest point, so I'm not exactly sure. But it'll I think it's going to be fantastic. And. Uh I'm guessing you'll also perhaps be um, in in prayer as you witness this moon. Oh, you bet. We'll have just uh, finished our seder. We have a uh, last year we did a Passover seder with 1,500 people. I think it was one of the world's largest seders. And uh, this year we cut it back and we're going to live stream it instead to thousands of people all over the world. And so that's on Sunday night. And then Monday morning, I catch the plane to Michigan so I can be up night photographing it, and I go back to Seattle Tuesday. But definitely, this is Passover. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a holy time. It's a time for prayer. So uh, definitely, this is, in one sense, it's a somber time. It's a prayerful time, and especially when you reflect on what happened 2,000 years ago when Messiah died. So it's definitely a uh, significant uh, event. And and the the um, the final blood moon that occurs was it September thirteenth uh, September twenty eighth twenty fifteen yeah uh, do you intend to be flying hither and yon to, to to get a good glimpse of that one if it's not available in Seattle I I'm going to be in Jerusalem there is no way. I am not going to miss seeing a super blood moon over the city of Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles when all nations are there celebrating. I am in I'm, – I'm renting a hotel. In for full nine <laughs> for, yards. Yeah, every year I do a tour. Uh, this year we have 80 people coming here in a couple weeks. We're going to be in Israel the end of April, 1st of May this year with 80 people. And people are begging me to do a tour. But I tell you what, once this gets out in Israel and around the United States, every hotel room is going to be booked solid within the next few months. Just final word, and we only have about 10 seconds. Are you worried? No, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting. 
Well, Mark, fascinating. And again, we can uh, look forward to that first of four Blood Moons tomorrow night. Mark Blitz is the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. Appreciate your time, Mark. Hey, thank you. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communications, spiritual growth and development, problem hauntings, and portals, or geographic areas of intense paranormal activity. She spends a great deal of time out in the field conducting investigations and research. She has done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. She joins us once a month here on The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Oh, I've been doing great, Richard. I had a fantastic trip to England where I did some lecturing and a lot of sightseeing. And I'm back in the swing of things in the U.S. now. Well, for a paranormal investigator, I'm thinking, like, going to merry old England. I don't know why I think this, but this, uh, to me, when uh, I've been to England once, and I just felt like everywhere you stepped, there were ghosts everywhere. I mean, literally and figuratively, if you know what I mean. So much history there. The whole country has uh, a great haunted history. In fact, you can ask the question, what isn't haunted in England rather than what is? Because everywhere you go, uh, there's a ghost story. Precisely, yes. Well, listen, welcome back. And uh, I wanted to get your take on a number of interesting stories. We'll do sort of a, a paranormal news roundup. And the first one is right in your wheelhouse. And that is... Um, a story that uh, ran in the uh, the Mirror, speaking of merry old England, the London Daily Mirror, and it's a picture uh, that is being touted as photog- photographic proof that fairies are real. Now, this is something that you've ri- written about extensively. I think you've written a major encyclopedia about fairies. First of all, describe the picture, give us some history, and give me your take on it. There are uh, a couple of pictures here in the news article, and they show tiny little wing things. They look like moths with legs and arms and tiny little heads. And uh, there's, oh, um, about seven or eight of them, maybe closer to ten in uh, one photograph. And then there's another photograph where uh, it looks like a close-up showing uh, a couple of these things. I believe in fairies. I have seen photographs uh, of beings identified as fairies. These I'm very skeptical of. Uh, I've seen so many photographs with these moth-like things in them that people feel are fairies. Um, I, the, the gentleman who took these uh, claims that they haven't been altered, um, they look stick-like to me. They look, um, they just don't strike me as something that fairies would look like. On one hand, do we know what fairies should always look like? Well, there you in, go. In the end, I mean, uh, they, some of them they come you in see... a lot of different shapes and sizes. But, but Richard, the thing is that most accounts of sightings of fairies, and you can, you can go back into the 1800s on this, uh, and even earlier, back into the 1600s, fairies are not described as having wings. Uh, this was an art thing that, that um, 
the Victorians did. They depicted fairies with wings. And um, uh, it, when people have encounters with fairies, it's rarely with tiny little wing things. They're more like small people than anything else. Well, they are curious to look at. In some of them, you can actually see other appendages. It looks like a pair of arms and the legs. And, yeah, you know, look at the source. It is, the, the, the photographer uh, is a university professor, I believe, from is it Manchester University. Yes, and he's quite serious about fairies. Uh, they reminded me of the Cottingley fairy hoax, and I'm I'm not accusing this person of perpetrating a hoax. Uh, he could have photographed something that he he thought uh, were genuine fairies, but those also were very small wing things. And um, I did uh, try and zoom in on them. The the images start to fall apart with. Uh, too much zooming in on them, but they all have these very straight doll-like legs and very straight stick-like arms and tiny little heads that you can't um, discern uh, any detail about. So um, my assessment is the jury's out on these. And yes, until someone I'm can very skeptical. Uh, I agree. And until at such time as someone can maybe capture one of those in a jar, like we used to do with fireflies. <laughs> Uh, listen, I want to get your take. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Uh, the website is visionaryliving.com. Uh, I want to get you, your take on this uh, remarkable story out of Brazil. Alani Santos, eight-year-old girl uh, who is said to perform miracles and can channel God to cure arth- arthritis, cancer, HIV, just by touching people. It almost sounds like uh, another a Brazilian who goes by the name of John of God. This could be something that's the genuine article because healing through touch has been documented back to ancient times. And, of course, Jesus did it. There were accounts in the the Bible of that. Uh, Faith healing is uh, something that takes place around the world. The saint literature is full of cases where people um, say that they were miraculously cured of all kinds of afflictions. And uh, there have been cases of uh, wonder children in the past doing this as well. There's um, kind of a downside to some of this faith healing because um, uh, in, in faith healing, people get in, into a very ecstatic state of consciousness, and of course they're very fervent, they want to believe that they're being healed, and, and I believe that intensity of emotion is very important to a miraculous cure. But there are cases where people say they're cured and then they have a relapse later on. Um, so uh, there might be some of those cases, but um, this child could be doing the, the real thing. Let's take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to talk about uh, the case of Alani Santos. Here on The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley in studio. Back with more in a moment. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with our paranormal roundup with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website, and we're talking about eight-year-old Alani Santos. Uh, some remarkable videos on YouTube. In one, uh, she's laying her hands on a uh, an elderly woman who walks with a cane, uh, and then afterwards she's walking without the use of a stick. Uh, she's seen healing a man who has been suffering supposedly from HIV for seven years, uh, and all of this. Uh, this uh, she's the daughter of um, a pastor in uh, is it Rio, Rio de Janeiro I believe the slums of Rio de Janeiro not exactly the place maybe you would expect to find someone channeling God or maybe that's precisely the point that's exactly where you would expect to find her uh, a final word on Alani before we move on Rosemary 
from the perspective of, re- of religion, it's often said that uh, God works wonders through the innocents, uh, the people who are the innocents of the world, and certainly a child would fall into that category. So uh, I think uh, we need to keep a watch on her, and uh, the, the cases of the healings do need to be examined by medical experts and well-documented. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, she might very well be, be doing the genuine article. Rosemary, you and I have talked a lot over the years about demonic possession, and now uh, there's a, um, a psychologist in the United Kingdom, a Dr. Terence Palmer, who's the first person in the UK to earn a PhD in what they're now calling, sort of giving demonic possession more of a scientific name, they're calling it spirit release therapy. What is this spirit release therapy? Basically, it's a polite term for exorcism. Uh, It's uh, like uh, using the word intuition instead of psychic. It just doesn't carry that connotation that exorcism has. When we think of exorcism, we think of people being possessed by demons and horrible things happening, priests getting thrown around like um, in, in the movie The Exorcist. Spirit release therapy is actually very old, and uh, the the term has been around a while. Um, The first medical cases that were well-documented go back to the 1930s. Dr. Carl Wickland and his wife, who was a medium, Anna, uh, talked about how people's medical and mental afflictions could be attributed to spirits who were attached to them. They could be uh, discarnate. Um, human beings who had passed on who were looking for vehicles to satisfy their physical cravings and desire to have a body again. They could be non-human entities. But Wickland made the case for uh, spirit involvement in a lot of our uh, health issues. And other researchers since then have followed in his footsteps. Dr. William Baldwin uh, was an American quite well known for this. He actually believed that uh, most of us walk around with all kinds of spirit attachments all the time. Many of them are kind of uh, low level, and uh, sometimes they get to be very problematic. So here we have an example in the U.K., where uh, this is coming more into um, the lexicon of uh, therapies available for people. Um, When I was going to England a lot back in the 1990s, I became acquainted with a medium by the name of um, Eddie Burke. And uh, he was involved in forming an organization to promote spirit releasement therapy. And I think we're going to see more of this in the future. It's going to become more of an accepted idea in our culture. Uh, but it sounds like some of these more modern-day practitioners, uh, like this Dr. Terrence Palmer, uh, they're saying things like, well, spirit attachment and spirit release therapy, therapy you know, aren't based on, on faith or sort of the religious idea of demonic possession. It almost sounds like they're saying you don't necessarily have to believe in it. It's just a technique, and it seems to work. Exactly, and I think it's a good thing to get this sort of thing out of the religious arena, that uh, if we do indeed have spirit interference, and and I believe this myself, I see so many cases of it in my paranormal investigation work, um, getting it away from uh, a religious context where we have, we have to describe it in terms of satanic involvement and demons and things like that, uh, it hinders 
the ability of therapists to address it in a more objective way. So putting it into a scientific perspective, into the arena of psychotherapy and, and these, these other kinds of um, more conventional treatments, I think uh, will actually help more people in the long run. Right, but aren't the aren't these spirit release therapists? Aren't they basically secular secularists or materialists who are saying, you know, I don't believe in a spirit spirit realm. I believe that these people have some sort of mental health issue or physical physical ailment. But if it helps them by, you know, making them believe I'm doing an exorcism, then so be it. Well, some of them, yes, uh, do take that approach, and and others. Um, really talk about actual spirits who are attached to people. They become attached uh, through for various reasons. And uh, so I think we're, we're seeing a spectrum of approaches here to spirit uh, releasement therapy. And um, w- once again, um, if it helps someone, then uh, whatever approach, whatever label we put on it, uh, we may have to look at, you know, do the ends justify the means? And um, it, it's like uh, when people have contact with the dead uh, through dreams and visitations and in waking life, uh, some therapists don't believe that the dead actually visit. I believe they do. Uh, but their approach is, well, if that helps the person overcome their grief, then uh, let's not disturb what, uh, the experiencer actually believes. It'll be interesting. So I think we're going to see a variety of approaches here. Sure, and it'll be interesting to see how the sort of the official exorcists uh, in the Catholic Church react to this, because again, these spirit release therapists, their approach is sort of stripping away any of the uh, any of the sort of the the, uh, the sacrament associated with with exorcism. It's actually competition for them. I suppose you could look at that way. Yes, absolutely. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. She joins us uh, once a month here on the program, and we're doing our Paranormal News Roundup. Now, this story I find fascinating, and uh, there's an astronomer uh, and a mathematician, to boot, by the name of Bernard Carr, who's on the record as saying that the spiritual phenomena that we experience is something that actually exists in other dimensions that many of the phenomena experienced but can't explain within the physical laws of this dimension actually occur in other dimensions. What do you make of that, Rosemary? I think this is fascinating, and we're seeing more and more of this. Scientists attempting to put a scientific explanation on the paranormal. I do believe that we live in a multidimensional reality, these 11 dimensions that are described in... Uh, quantum physics, and that we can um, find these other phenomena in these other dimensions, which is what Bernard Carr is saying, that um, uh, these uh, things like out-of-body experiences, um, ghosts, hauntings, uh, even mystical experiences, near deaths, uh, all of these could take place in uh, other dimensions that we have access to. And from an occult perspective, the astral plane uh, would be one of those dimensions. And um, 
from an occult perspective, again, a lot of these experiences are explained as taking place on the astral plane. So we have kind of a merging of ideas here, just a different terminology. Um, most people in occultism would be thrilled if science could put uh, an explanation to these phenomena uh, because we live in a science-based world and a lot of people believe that if, if science doesn't say it, it doesn't exist, it's not real. So uh, having that grounding in science w- would be very important to our ability to accept, understand, and study these kinds of experiences. People are having them anyway, regardless of what science has to say about it, so we need some catching up to do. Right, and something is is only considered paranormal or supernatural until such time as there is a sort of more prosaic explanation for it. Uh, exactly. So uh, Bernard Carr does have some other company. There are other scientists who uh, have been uh, probing these ideas and uh, trying to explain uh, the paranormal from the quantum physics perspective. We still have the problem of subjectivity, Our experiences in the paranormal are essentially subjective. They can't be replicated in a laboratory. They can't be um, quantitative in any sort of description at all. Uh, All we have are anecdotal accounts throughout history that have certain patterns to them. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, this is um, an important Uh, avenue for science to explore. Scientists need to be able to address the paranormal without fear of being criticized by their colleagues, rejected by their institutions, and uh, ostracized, as Carl Jung was. He was called a mystic in his day, which uh, at the the time, the term mystic was like a career killer, uh, and we, we still see the same sort of thing today for scientists attempting to, to study these things. Well, um, Einstein talked about, you know, there being at least four dimensions, uh, the, the fourth one being time or time-space, and, you know, we've, we, I think we can wrap our heads around that, but now theoretical physicists are talking about at least 11 dimensions. Is there sort of a pecking order? Like, where is the dimension that we live in, sort of in on the pecking order? Are we in the middle, are we at the highest, or are we at the lowest? Uh, well, we live in three dimensions, and that would be the lowest or the densest, the physical realm of matter. And uh, then the fourth dimension is time. And then there are these other descriptions, um, metaphysical descriptions, really, of these, these other dimensions, where uh, we would try and map them, and there are different ideas as to how these dimensions should be mapped, you know, like where do you place the afterlife, where do you place angels and uh, uh, non-corporeal spirits, uh, where do you place uh, other beings. And uh, I believe that these dimensions are attached to the earth and uh, that uh, all of these things literally exist around us all the time. We're just not aware of them because in, in our, dimen- our three-dimensional reality, we're vibrating, so to speak, at different frequency rates, and uh, we don't normally have access to these other areas. But when people have these paranormal experiences or even mystical experiences, uh, some sort of bridge occurs 
that uh, we are able to tune in to these um, these other realities that are here all the time anyway. I, I liken sort of the, the, the paranormal or the supernatural. Imagine you're sort of standing over a koi pond. Maybe you've got a goldfish pond in your backyard, and the fish only know what's underwater. Then you stick your finger from above down into the water, and they're saying, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> they have exactly. no concept. It's a fascinating area and a delight to talk to you once again, Rosemary. The website, visionaryliving.com. We'll talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.